This is Nemeth Satanotha for NAJM Catalyst. I am speaking today with Dr. George Diaz, part of the leadership team at the Providence St. Joseph Health System in Washington, who is helping to lead the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He serves as medical director, antimicrobial stewardship, infectious disease hospitalist, and section chief, infectious diseases at the Providence Regional Medical Center, Everett, which is part of the Providence St. Joseph Health System in Washington. He also serves as the system provider informaticist for the larger enterprise. Dr. Diaz and I will talk today about his experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. Our objective is to discuss care delivery, the very mission of NEJM Catalyst during a unique and defining moment. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Diaz. Thank you for having me. Share with us some background. Tell us a little bit about Providence St. Joseph as a system, how it's organized, and how it provides care for patients. Uh, Providence St. Joseph Health has uh, 51 hospitals, uh, primarily on the West Coast, uh, including Alaska, Washington, Montana, Oregon, California, New Mexico, and Texas. Uh, we have about 1,000 clinics. Uh, it has a central structure for clinical governance. Uh, each of the uh, specialties within the um, clinical arena has uh, engaged providers that provide decision-making for the health system. Um, along those lines, we have a unified EMR. Uh, we are on the EPIC platform. And infectious diseases content uh, is one of the areas that I work in to build into our EMR. The, um, the hospital-wide practice uh, infectious diseases uh, is in Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. Um, we are a 600-bed hospital, uh, the largest hospital in our county, uh, one of the areas uh, hardest hit with the current pandemic. We received uh, the first patient in the U.S. with coronavirus in January, uh, and uh, as soon as the first patient arrived for hospital, uh, we activated our special pathogens unit and uh, employed our dedicated uh, volunteer staff uh, of nurses and other staff that, that, that work with uh, special pathogens. On uh, arrival of the first patient, I began coordinating closely with our system leadership to begin uh, a, a centralized response to what was likely going to be uh, additional patients coming into our health system. Within 24 hours of the first patient arriving, uh, we updated our electronic medical record to begin screening uh, patients for uh, possible coronavirus infection based on uh, travel history. Uh, and by 5 p.m. the next day, all of our uh, hospitals, uh, including ERs, urgent care clinics, outpatient clinics, and any other ancillary clinics, uh, were all screening patients uh, looking for possible additional patients uh, that could be COVID positive based on their uh, epidemiological risk. Let me interrupt you just as we're at the very beginnings of, of, this, of this story from which we all have many lessons to learn. Let me clarify that I heard correctly that within 24 hours you had a template up in the EMR and within it sounds like one to two days pretty much every part of the hospital was up and functioning in terms of being able to screen patients. How did you implement so quickly? 
we have a uh, a uh, leadership group that's led by uh, Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, uh, who uh, made the decision the night that we had the patient arrive that we need to be prepared for any patient presenting anywhere in our organization. Uh, we already had the the framework within our uh, EMR to rapidly um, upload uh, different contagions for screening. Uh, we had done this for uh, things like Ebola, MERS, SARS, etc. A tool that we designed ourselves within EPIC to be able to allow us to turn on screening at the county level uh, where outbreaks are often determined uh, in this particular case because this appeared to be a threat that would not be limited to single county. Uh, the senior leadership team within our health system um, uh, provided guidance to our clinical leadership to implement the screening immediately. And so the build team uh, began working essentially overnight uh, to update the EMR to allow for uh, screening across our entire enterprise. And then, then what happened? At that point, uh, we began caring for the patient locally. Uh, one of the things that we noticed was that our, our team was that was prepared to receive a patient with, for example, Ebola, uh, was limited to about 15 nurses. Uh, and so we knew that uh, given what we saw in China, that the volume of patients uh, coming into our health system potentially could grow exponentially. And so we began operational uh, uh, plans to increase the, the number of staff within our hospital uh, to be able to have uh, large numbers of nursing staff be adept at managing uh, patients with potentially highly communicable diseases. Um, this, this not only occurred at our hospital, but simultaneously occurred across our health system uh, through centralized um, governance uh, that provided the framework and an operational plan for uh, readying uh, staff for uh, taking care of these patients uh, system-wide. Within our hospital, we also began implementing plans for surge capacity. Uh, thankfully for my hospital, uh, one entire floor uh, was built in a way that could accommodate um, the entire floor to be uh, negative uh, air pressure. Uh, that particular unit has 64 beds, and so we made plans for being able to cohort all of our patients, both COVID positives and COVID rule-outs uh, initially on that floor um, so that we would have uh, the nursing expertise uh, localized to one part of the hospital at least early on in the, uh, the upcoming pandemic. The other things that we had to consider was um, how we were going to manage volume. Uh, what we saw uh, happening in China was that health systems and hospitals were becoming overwhelmed by the sheer volume of patients. So we began developing algorithms within our health system to triage patients uh, either for admission or, or for home. And since we knew, based on literature that was coming out of China, that there was a substantial number of patients who would develop complications from COVID later uh, in their illness, uh, we felt that it was important to design a system that could detect uh, changes uh, in the patient status uh, if they happened to be discharged from the ED. Uh, we also knew that it, that uh, PPE would be potentially limited, and so we wanted to devise a way to minimize the use of PPE as much as possible while keeping patients safe. And so the solution that we came up with was to um, uh, deploy our telehealth system in a way 
to be able to safely monitor uh, both COVID positive patients and uh, ED discharge patients to home uh, using our telehealth system. So we began building the tools within our EMR to support that workflow uh, and uh, began piloting that uh, workflow at my particular hospital uh, since we were one of the hospitals that were having uh, the, the largest increase in number of patients coming in through our doors. And so uh, we modified the, ER, the EMR in a way that, that the patients could uh, enter data themselves into my chart, uh, into their record, uh, and created uh, templates for the telephone system to enter notes into the EMR uh, so that uh, anybody uh, accessing the patient record would have access to the telehealth notes as well. Uh, we developed workflows for uh, warm handoff between both ED uh, discharges to home as well as inpatient to home discharges uh, where the discharging nurse uh, did a warm handoff to telehealth nursing. Um, this program has allowed us to decompress and prevent admissions uh, that are necessary. Uh, so far, uh, we have in the range of about 200 patients within that system right now being actively monitored from home, and the number of patients returning to the hospital has been relatively small on the order of less than 10. So the, the large majority of patients in our experience so far uh, do well with home monitoring if they're stable, but a small fraction of these people do develop uh, a change in their syndrome uh, where they require readmission uh, to the hospital. This also allows us to keep them at home and not uh, use PPE in the hospital and open up hospital beds uh, for additional sicker patients. Let me let me ask let me interrupt to ask you uh, a couple of follow up questions in, in in this part of 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 the journey. The first is uh, where are we in time now? So the first uh, patient came in in January, and now you're describing algorithms and elegant workflows around warm handoffs and integrating telemedicine and and telehealth. That's one question. The second is. In this time period, how are you managing testing? Uh, because a lot of what you're just talking to me about is dependent on whether the patient is COVID positive or, or not. And then the third uh, is also if you could talk a little bit about in these transitions between ED to home or inpatient to home, uh, a little bit about the, the algorithms that you use to decide whether somebody was safe to go home or not. I think that is a big unknown, at least in my hospital, we're still working through how to be thoughtful about safety of, of sending people home. So let me see if I can remember those three questions. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll answer the, the last one first. Sure. So um, the, the question about how you decide to send someone home from ED or inpatient. So. Um, we currently have uh, clinical trials that give us uh, entry criteria for at least what's defined as severe pneumonia by uh, inclusion criteria to a clinical trial. Um, and we essentially use those as a way to determine if someone should be uh, either actively monitored or admitted to the hospital. Uh, an example would be that the current trial uh, looks at oxygen, oxygen saturation, uh, and if it's uh, below 94%, for the most part, those folks will uh, meet entry for a clinical trial, and, and if patients are close to requiring oxygen or have another reason for admission, the ED docs will, will then admit them. 
um, to the hospital uh, for for admission. If patients then uh, stabilize uh, and oxygen levels improve in the hospital, uh, then they can be discharged uh, to telehealth uh, from the inpatient setting. Uh, we're primarily using oxygenation status as the way that we determine if someone can safely go home from both ED and hospital. Um, the second question that you asked had to do about the, I think, the time frame uh, between when I when we received our first patient in Everett and when we were went live with this telehealth uh, system. Uh, we admitted our first patient, the first patient on January 20th. Um, he was in our hospital for a period of about, I think it was maybe eight or nine days. And by roughly February 25th, we started seeing surge and volumes at our hospital. Uh, and by about uh, March 3rd, we had uh, began the pilot at my hospital to get people uh, triaged either to home from ED or, or home from uh, uh, inpatient settings. So um, I would say it was roughly six weeks from the, the time the first patient walked in the door to the time that we were employing this alternative care model. Congratulations. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't recall the, the first question. Yeah. The, the first question, uh, was, well, this was the first question around putting all of this tremendous amount of progress into context of six weeks. Uh, the second question was many of these algorithms uh, appropriately depend on whether a patient is COVID positive or negative. Uh, how did you handle the scarcity of, of testing kits uh, during, during this time frame? Right, so that's a, that's a great question. So um, one of the reasons we also thought that we needed to do telehealth monitoring was because uh, early on when we started seeing surge in volumes, we, we did not have re uh, rapid access to testing and it actually took as long as four or five days to get results. And so um, we were discharging in, in large numbers uh, uh, people under investigation uh, rather than people that were COVID positive. Um, and so uh, the, the once results came back from testing and, and they were outpatients, uh, as long as they were clinically stable and, and if they were COVID negative, uh, they would be, be then discharged from telehealth. Uh, if they were COVID positive uh, after discharge from ED or inpatient, uh, they would continue to be monitored uh, until uh, near resolution of symptoms. The, the lack of testing was a, it was a big problem but I think we mitigated it by being able to discharge many of these folks outside the hospital setting. And then monitoring them via telehealth. Exactly. So they would yeah. they would uh, get hooked up with the telehealth nurse and they would uh, download Zoom uh, at home or if it was an elderly person that didn't have access to a computer, uh, all the monitoring could be done by phone. Given your experiences over the last few months, what will healthcare delivery look like in the future? How how will it be different than what we knew pre-COVID? Um, I think what we're learning now is that in areas where we have populations that are growing, um, and perhaps we don't have the number of beds that are going to be built to support the increases in population, that we're going to need to rely on, on telehealth models to be able to provide care. 
whether it be people that are actually local that, that uh, can stay home. Uh, there certainly are numbers, large numbers of people that have difficulty uh, leaving their homes and, and going to a clinic. Uh, those patients could definitely benefit from telehealth services. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, patients that live a little bit farther away from the hospital in rural areas where it's a burden to drive long distances to get care. I think uh, these virtual visits will be uh, a great way to uh, expand care without expanding uh, brick-and-mortar uh, facilities. What are some of the challenges that you've had with implementing and now sustaining and scaling uh, this model as you're using telehealth to, to, to manage the pandemic, uh, and what are some challenges you see either same or different in, in the future uh, post, post-COVID? Um, I, I would say that the, the largest sort of uh, management issues is, is really uh, finding uh, and being able to scale qualified staff to do uh, sort of rapid-scale increases in telehealth volumes. Um, I think that uh, if a health system has time and a plan, uh, they can scale their staff uh, appropriately. Uh, but uh, scaling it rapidly, as we've done, uh, uh, really requires identification of the resources to, to create a, a, a program like this uh, that can scale into a multi-state sort of uh, scenario. The other area that's been difficult has been um, cross-state licensing. So um, currently, I think that it's it's we've had difficulty in in being able to um, uh, contract nurses uh, in the state where uh, they reside, where the patients live. If that particular state does not have cross state uh, agreements on um, on credentialing. To end on a positive note, share with us a success story from these last few weeks. Well, uh, the, the biggest success story, I would say, is that um, using this, uh, using our telehealth model, uh, I think so far we've been successful in having patients be in the right place for the type of care they require. Uh, it's allowed us to uh, not overrun our hospital with, uh, with um, patients uh, that could otherwise be at home uh, but are COVID um, either positive or unknown. Uh, that's allowed us to not exceed our capacity at our hospital despite uh, large increases in volumes uh, that we've seen overall coming through our ED. Um, we have had to uh, cancel elective surgeries, as most of the hospitals in our area have also done. Uh, but our overall hospital census uh, so far has been manageable. Uh, the other sort of success story, at least in our facility, has been that despite um, having large volumes of patients come in, uh, with oftentimes, uh, you know, over 100 patients in the hospital who are either COVID positive or persons under investigation, uh, we've not had any transmission of COVID to any of our healthcare workers. Uh, and I think that's in large part to uh, cohorting these patients and maintaining nursing and provider expertise uh, in PP technique, uh, uh, which doesn't appear to have been broken, uh, resulting in, in hospital transmission amongst uh, caregivers. Dr. Diaz, thank you so much for speaking with NHAM Catalyst today. Thank you very much.